right, let's pray, and then we'll jump right into this. Uh, Heavenly Father, I really do just thank you for uh, just that you are a God uh, who is, who is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-gracious. Lord, that you are so gracious to us, that you, uh, your graciousness goes beyond our boundaries, and we all have struggles and trials, and there's a lot in my life right now, Lord, I don't understand, and a number of things that I definitely don't like. And yet, uh, I just pray that tonight, even as we continue to go through Ephesians, that you would remind us what you have given us, and lead us to see how your your grace is administered to us, and lead us to see how the church is, uh, how the church functions, and how it works, and how you designed it to work, um, and that we can fit into that, Lord. That we can we can see that you've already made us to fit into it. That we can find the role that you have for us to play. And um, so I just thank you for um, the graciousness in my life shown through. Uh, many of the people in this room, and and uh, and the way that you do share your grace with us through people, and just pray that you'd give us a sense of awe and a sense of uh, just encourage us tonight, Lord, as we go through these things. These things we pray in your Son's name, Amen. So, anybody would anybody like to recap uh, chapters one and two? And that doesn't mean you have to recap everything, but anybody want to talk about anything that struck out to them from those first two chapters? Anybody remember anything? Anybody else? That's good. Yeah, he definitely, he seems to have freedom not to deal with a particular concern that he has. Um, and he also seems to be starting to talk about them as a community rather than individuals as much. It's very, a lot of his letters are more than we're aware of because we're very individualistic, but this letter in particular is very communal in its sense. Remember even last week he talked about how the, he talked about the new identity of the, of the church, that it's a new body um, with the Gentiles and the Jews coming together, that it is a new body. And um, so that was a, that was a big deal. Good, good. Those are really great thoughts. Anybody else? All right, excellent, we'll press on. So, uh, let's see. So starting in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. So remember, uh, this is just a reminder, where, where literally is Paul as he's writing the book of Ephesians? Yeah, he's in prison. <laughs> so when he says, prisoner for the sake of Christ Jesus, remember he's in Rome, he's waiting trial, um, he's been waiting trial already for several years. He's got about another two or three years left, we know. But he's, he's in house arrest, um, which is not as pleasant as it sounds. I mean, he's got a guard with him 24 hours a day. And so he's in house arrest. He's in, he's, uh, in prison. And so he, when he says to them, he's just talked about how glorious it is to be part of the church, that together we make up the temple of God, and together we make up the body of Christ. And so the Holy Spirit dwells in us, and Christ dwells in us, and God the Father is looking at us with pleasure. And so it's a big, big, glorious thing. Um, and then he says, uh, and then he reminds them that that doesn't prohibit the possibility that the circumstances in his life might not be entirely 
uh, in first glance, glorious. <laughs> right? He's a prisoner. And so he says, so this reason, he says, remember, I am a prisoner for Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. I'm here because of what I was doing. I was preaching to you, and that made the Jews mad. And that's ultimately what led me here. Remember, it wasn't the Romans that were mad at Paul. It was the Jews. And the Romans just kind of got caught up in this thing, and, and Paul kind of did it himself because to avoid being killed by the Jews, he, he said, I'm a Roman citizen, so, and I appeal to Caesar knowing that they'd have to get him out of there, and they did. So really, it's, he's saying, look, it's because I was preaching to the Gentiles that I'm here. So it really, when he says, for the sake of you, he means it, but he doesn't mean it in any sort of passive-aggressive way. <laughs> he's just letting them know, hey, this is where I am, and I was willing to be here for you. Um, He says, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. So this whole chapter 3 and 4 take this idea of administration of grace, and and that's what we're going to be talking about. And it's a weird word, a weird phrase, and it's an interesting term. Um, If you think about administration of money, what does that mean? If If I give you the responsibility of the administration of $10,000, it would be a miracle. But if I did that, what would that, what, what would that mean? Well, taking care of it. So probably what you're supposed to do is just put it under your pillow, right? Probably invest it. Administer has the idea of doing something with it, right? You're actually using it for something. Being res- you're responsible for it, but you're, you're, you're responsible for doing something actively with it generally, right? It's not really just a matter of holding on to it. And, and so that would become the question if I gave you $10,000 and said, this is my money, I'm giving you stewardship of this. Your question would probably be, what do you want me to do with it? <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, why? <laughs> and what do you want me to do with it? And, and $10,000 would be a huge, well, for me, that would be a huge amount. I mean, I mean, there's people who deal with a lot more money than that. But, but that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a big deal. That's a big responsibility. And now Paul begins to talk about the administration of God's grace. And we've talked about God's grace. We've seen examples of God's grace as we've gone through Scripture. We've seen what a big deal it is. And again, for the sake of today, because it works for me, it's a, it's a definition I've worked with ever since I've started the conferences, and it works for me. We're just going to use it today. It's as good a definition as any. You can use a different one, and that's fine. But the, the God's power and desire to do good to you, that he has the power to bless you and that he desires to bless you is, is, is a good way to look at the grace of God. So now you think of that, all that power that we've been talking about in Ephesians, and all that desire to bless you that we've also been talking about in Ephesians. And now Paul says, surely you've heard about the administration of that, how that's implemented. Okay? He hasn't yet said he's responsible for administrating it. Well, yes, he does. He says about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. So what he's really saying, and I want you to grasp this because this theme is going to be picked up several times throughout these chapters. What he's saying to them is, look, God's power and desire to do good to you, it's like this big, huge, infinite pool of grace right? Because he's all-powerful, and nothing can make him desire less to do good to you. In that infinite pool, he reached in, and he, he looked at Paul, and he handed Paul some of it, and he said, your job is to use this to bless those Gentiles. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, God gave me some of the grace to administer to the Gentiles. And you think that's kind of an audacious way to put it, right? Could have just said, God gave me a mission, and my mission was to preach the gospel to you, right? That would be true, and that's largely what he's saying. But the way he's saying it is really important because he's going to tell them later, not surprisingly, they also have been given grace to administer. And what are they doing with it? Right? Are they doing with it? <laughs> and so it's kind of a big statement. 
And in a lot of different ways, he's going to talk about this administration of grace. He's going to talk about specifically in he, for him what it, what it looks like, what it was he was supposed to do and is supposed to do with the grace. But he's also going to talk about the idea in general, what it means that God administers grace given to me for you. By the way, just as an aside, and we will get there uh, when we get to First Peter later on, Peter, just to show you this isn't just kind of a Pauline thing, Peter has this same theme. And he says at one point very specifically, he says, for we are stewards of God's manifold grace. He just says it right out. He says, each of us has been given a gift. And we are in that capacity stewards of the very manifold grace of God. And he says, whoever speaks should speak as if he speaks the very words of God. And whoever serves should serve with the strength that God provides. Which is kind of huge. And so Peter, again, has that same idea. And that's where Paul's gone. All right, let's go on though. Let's, let's hear specifically about Paul's administration of grace. So, uh, one of the ideas here is distribution and implementation. When you're administering something, it means the distribution of it and the implementation of it, right? And that's what he's saying. I've been given grace to distribute and to implement in some fashion, to do something with. And so this is what he says. Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. So I was given revelation. I was, a mystery was revealed to me, and that was part of the administration of the grace. Right? Now, we talked in Ephesians 2 because he talked about it, and he says, I've already written about it briefly. Does anybody remember what he said in Ephesians 2 about this mystery? That's all right. What he said, what, what's up? I, I, think that's, I think that's related, but specifically what he talks about in the mystery is that it's of the churches of the Gentiles and the Jews coming together. That was part of the mystery. And so you can see for him that makes sense. Part of his role, part of his job was to bring the Gentiles into the church, right? Um, as I've already written briefly, in reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men and other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. The mystery is, in case, in case you're not sure, he just is going to tell us right out. The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. And remember, he's writing pretty much to Gentiles at this point in, in Ephesus. So he's telling them, the mystery is that this Jewish Messiah is your Messiah. The mystery is that you are sharing in this. So you are co-heirs, members together of one body, and sharers in the promise. He already talked a little bit about this in Ephesians 2, and he's just kind of elaborating on it here. So it's the gospel. And it's the fact that the, the gospel is for all nations. And he, de- he says that it wasn't made known to men in other generations as it's been revealed now. In other words, it was revealed, as he himself has pointed out in the Old Testament, that David has a psalm where he says, uh, Psalm 63, God blesses us so that all the ends of the earth will be blessed. Right? I mean, it's right there. <laughs> That's what it's for. You know, and some of the prophets said, you know, it's not... You're going to be blessed so that you will be a blessing to all nations. The promise that was made to Abraham was exactly that, that you will have children and your children will be more numerous than the grains of sand and they will be a blessing to all peoples. But, but, they didn't, but it wasn't as clear. And that's what Paul means. It wasn't made known with the clarity and the revelation that it's been made known now. Because who the Messiah was and what the Messiah would do and how the gospel was going to unfold was not made known. It was not clear. They knew there would be a Messiah. They knew that perhaps if they were paying attention that it would be a blessing to all nations. But the clarity of how all that goes together, that we would become one body, that we would become co-heirs together, that the promise that God made Abraham would actually be extended to every nation, 
it's kind of blow your mind kind of stuff for the Jews and a little bit difficult for them to swallow, which is why Paul got into so much trouble, right? But he's even telling the Ephesians, hey, this is good news. This is what you need to realize. And Paul is telling them, this is part of my role. This is part of my administration of the grace of God. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me. He, he wants to make a couple of really important points. There's, a, there's, a, there's got to be, we can imagine, a tendency in the church at this point, in the history of the church, for the, gen, for the Gentiles to feel a little bit less than equal and for the Jews to occasionally feel a little bit superior, right? And so he's saying to the Gentiles, you know what? Now, he is a Jew among Jews, right? He said that before too. He's, he's right at the top. And yet, he's telling the Gentiles, being very honest and open, you know, when I really look at my life, I, did, I wasn't the cream of the crop. God didn't choose me to do this because I'm the cream of the crop. God chose me to do this because I can relate to you <laughs> as feeling less than worthy because I am less than the least. And I don't think, I, in one sense, it's hyperbole in that, you know, he's not really worse than anybody else. But in a very personal sense, it's not hyperbole. I think this is genuinely how he sees it. And, and I think there's reason for that. I think that God is kind to Paul in Scripture in that God doesn't let us see how truly horrific Paul was when he was Saul. But listening to Paul talk about when he was Saul, the little bit that he says, you get the sense that he may have been much more brutal than we're aware of. We know that he stood there at a minimum when Stephen was stoned. He cast the vote for Stephen to be stoned. He said, this man should be dead. We know that, in fact, he was standing there holding the cloaks of those who actually threw the stones, right? It's not necessary as a member of the Sanhedrin, to go witness the stoning of people you get, right? And yet here he is saying, let me hold that for you so you can kill this man. He says of himself that he used to go house to house taking women and children. And you think, doing, taking them, what does that mean? Did he execute them? Did he put them in prison? Did he torture them for information? We don't know. But when you think about statements like this that Paul makes, it makes me think and, and you look at the fear that the apostles had of him when he first got saved, right? It took Barnabas to say, no, he's okay. And it took three years for the, all the apostles to go, okay, this is a real conversion. <laughs> Up until then, I think there was this fear that he's a spy. He's trying to get us. He's trying to kill us. Why be that afraid? Were they that faithless? No. I think the evidence was that strong. <laughs> they were just like, this guy. So I, I think that, again, God is gracious, and he doesn't, you know, give us all that about Paul because, again, it's wiped clean. But the reason that it's here, and the reason I bring it up at this point, is because when he says the, the least of all people, that's him recognizing, I didn't deserve this grace. I didn't earn it by my Jewish heritage. I am just like you. Yeah, go ahead. Exactly right. That's exactly right. And it's a way of relating to the Gentiles. He's saying to them, I'm not better than you. I was never better than you. You know? Which is true of everybody, but again, Paul has a real resonance to it because they probably did know these stories that we don't know. They probably did know this. So it's, a, it's very humble of him because he could take a whole different tack. You know? He could talk about his, He's done that in other books where it's important. He 
could talk about his apostleship. He could talk about the conversion. He doesn't talk about the conversion almost at all, except just to say it happened and that it came to him when he deserved at least. You guys remember when it happened? What was he doing? What was his mission? Yeah, he was getting ready to go kill people. <laughs> I mean, it happened. He wasn't seeking God. He, you know, he was doing his thing. It, you know, I mentioned this before, but it's fascinating. God has a habit of changing people's names throughout Scripture. It's really fascinating the way he does it. But one of the interesting ones was Saul to Paul. Saul was the name, even though we know as we read the Old Testament that Saul the king was not a good king, he was still the first king. And he's a big figure in the Jewish world, and, and to be named after Saul is still an honor. And so he was named Saul, and so it was kind of a big deal. And Paul was, Saul was very much into the big deal that he was. You know, he was, a, he, was a, he was a Roman citizen and a Pharisee. I mean, he had like the best of all worlds. You know, he was at the top of everything. Truth is, his conversion had to be real or it was just ridiculous because he gave up everything. When he talks in Philippians, which we'll get to later, when he talks about how he gave up everything in his past, again, that was a lot. He's renamed Paul. We don't know why he's renamed Paul or when he's renamed Paul. Luke just suddenly starts calling him Paul in the book of Acts. He doesn't say anything about it. Knowing God's habit of renaming people, it makes sense to me that somewhere along the line, Jesus said to him, by the way, you're Paul now. Paul is a word which means little. So he went from being Saul to being little, and he was totally fine with it. I mean, it's, it's like it was his recognition. I'm not everything I thought I was. And not in a in a self-defeating, you know, wimpy way, it made him really powerful. It made him really strong. It made him capable of saying things like, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and you're awesome, and I'm awesome, you know, according to what Christ has done for us in righteousness, not in ourselves. But, but it's this recognition that really, he's little. And that's what he's saying to them. I'm the least. Um, Although I'm less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. So we also remember this mystery. It is the Gentiles and Jews coming together, but it's also this big thing that we've been talking about of the whole universe being redeemed, right? That God foreknew and chose and preordained and had all these things before the world was even created. He knew where you would be today. And that he was going to make you holy and blameless in the blood of Christ. That's awesome. And so that big plan, all that way, that's part of it. And that it's all leading up to a moment where everything will be put under the headship of Christ and the whole universe will be put back in order. It will be made right again. Right now it's not right. You know, we were just talking before he came in about the trials and the struggles and the suffering. Our world is not right. Right? It is okay that when we suffer we think this doesn't feel right. <laughs> Whenever anybody in the world dies, there's this sense of that's not right, and yet it happens all the time. <laughs> but it's, it's part of the fallenness. It's part of the curse. What is right is it's all going to be put back. Justice will come back. Order will come back. Grace will be there. It's all going to come back. God's going to put everything under the headship of Christ. And that's the big plan. That's part of the big mystery too. And the church is this huge part of that. As we talked about, the church has this glorious position in that of revealing to everybody the inheritors of the grace of God, of seeing how man- magnificent God is that he was able to redeem even us. And, and so now, that's the plan. And now think about what he's saying. This is why. You have to understand, he's not putting himself down, but he's putting it all in perspective. He's saying, I, the least of everybody, was given kind of the most amazing mission you can imagine. <laughs> right? Which is to explain for the first time to everybody what this incredible mystery is. And that's, I think, why Paul has to be really clear. It's not because of who I am. 
because of God's grace. He chose to have me do this. I don't have any idea why. And if Paul could come up with an idea why, he would simply say it's because I was the least deserving. <laughs> That's what Paul would say, you know, because I had the least to offer. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. We sometimes, I don't know if you've ever done it, but as I've grown up in the Christian world, occasionally you'll hear people talk about, and I understand it, and again, not a big deal. I, I, I get it. I do. You got to think of these things humanly on some level. But I, I, you'll hear people talk about it, friends of theirs or somebody, and they think, man, if that person would just get saved, they have so much talent, God could really use them. And the funny thing is when we say that, that totally denies the way God has worked all the way through, which is taking talentless people <laughs> and using them, right? But again, it's just our, it's the way we look at it. And even Paul, yeah, he, the, there is, a, there is a, a beauty to the way God, thinks, God does things. There's a poetry to it because Paul did have certain gifts and personality traits and skills that, that served him well. But it's really, it's, again, it's God's grace again. It's not those things. Um, so he says, I became a servant of his gospel by this gift. Um, I am less than the least, but this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone in the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. Unsearchable, uh, make plain, kept hidden. These are all terms of this mystery, that it's now becoming clear. And Paul gets to be the front of it. And Paul is just like, all I can tell you is that's just a testimony to how gracious God is, because I don't deserve to be this guy, right? In fact, Paul probably thinks, I could have totally missed this. I was on my way to missing this, right? I was on my way to being on the wrong side. You know, I was already on the wrong side. He says his intent was that now through the church, now listen to this, listen to this. He's about to unfold a big portion of this mystery. So why do this? What's the purpose? His intent, God's intent, was that now through the church, okay? So here's the next thing. Paul says, I'm the least of all, and yet God chose me for this big thing. Now he's talking about the church, which is you and me and a whole bunch of other messed up people, right? <laughs> and, and we should be thinking the same thing. Why would he use the church? Well, you know, but look what he did with Paul, right? This is where it is. He chose that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. Okay, we'll stop there for a second. So that, that's amazing enough, without even finishing the sentence, that God's intent was that the church would make known the many-faceted wisdom of God, the manifold wisdom. The word is multifaceted. It's like a diamond. When you look at a diamond, the diamonds are multifaceted. You turn them, and the light glints and catch them, and no matter which way you turn them, they kind of send off sparks. And the more facets they're on a diamond, the more amazing it is, right? That's the word here. It's that kind of wisdom. You know, no matter how you turn it, there's something new. There's something amazing. You know, it's just like, wow. You know, I've, here we are going through the Scripture. I've been through Ephesians I don't know how many times, and yet every time, you know, there's like, New, new glints, you know, new glimpses. And so he says, the purpose of the church was that God would make known his manifold wisdom to everybody. And again, we look at the church in realistic terms. You look at the people who sit next to you in the pews, and you look at yourself, and you look at the people that you don't get along with, and the people you do get along with, and you look at, and you think, how could we reflect the manifold wisdom of God? You know, we, we, do, our, we do our best just not looking foolish, you know, and yet that's what he chose. But it's more than that. It's more than that. Because he says that the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Now, that's just bizarre. In other words, it's not just about making him known to the people of this world, but it's about revealing the manifold wisdom of God to the angels and the spirits, the, the, the heavenly realms, the spiritual realms. That's kind of amazing. 
It goes back to what we've talked about before, that the angels look in wonder and marvel at what God has done in redeeming men. That he is revealing his glory through this plan. This whole plan is, is revealing how amazing he is that he would redeem you and me. That he would use Paul, that he would use Saul, that he would use you and me, and that he would use the church to reveal his manifold wisdom to, to I don't think it means not to people here. Yes, to people here, but even more so to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Now, I don't think Scripture gives us a nice, good, clear hierarchy of the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, so I'm not going to try to give you one. Sometimes people claim to know a lot more than I do, and I don't know where they got it from, so I'm not going to go there. But there's something, right? There's something. And that's what he's talking about. That's what he says. According to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So again, it's that eternal purpose set from before the creation of the world. And it's been accomplished through Christ Jesus our Lord. He's not saying anything new here. He's just saying that part of the church's purpose is to reveal this amazing mystery. So Paul's job, his role, was the administration of the grace of God, was to reveal the mystery to the church, to the Gentiles, to everybody, to call us to come together so that then as a church, throughout however long we're here, at least 2,000 years, and presumably some more because we're still here, uh, that we would also reveal that manifold wisdom and that mystery and that revelation by being the church. Which leads to a lot of questions. What is the church? How does it do this? How does it look? How does it work? What does it mean? All questions Paul's about to answer. <laughs> he's no dummy. He's like, I just said something big about the church. Maybe now we should talk about it. And he's going to. But again, you can see Paul is painting huge, big, glorious, amazing pictures throughout the book of Ephesians. Can't you see that? It's not. It really isn't. Not yet. Now, he does at the end get to, here's how you ought to live. But in the context of the amazing glory that he's painting, that even becomes kind of an amazing thing. Suddenly, loving your wife takes on a whole big ramification and meaning that it didn't take on when you didn't understand these things. So he starts with this. Okay? In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I love that. Again, that's very Pauline. That's not a new thought for him. But through Christ, we get to approach God with freedom and with confidence. We aren't chained when we approach him. We aren't scared when we approach him. You know, even just think about Paul's a great guy. He's got a lot of courage, but he's going to meet with Caesar at some point. He's appealed to Caesar. Uh, he's not going to meet with Caesar with the freedom and confidence by which he says we can meet with God, right? He's going to approach Caesar in chains, and he's going to be afraid. I, 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 I'm just treating Paul as a human. I'm sure he was afraid, <laughs> right? He was brave, but he was afraid. Uh, he wasn't afraid of death, but just who knows, you know? Who wants to be beaten again? Nobody wants to be beaten again. <laughs> you know? So he, he, he can't even approach the earthly king that way, and yet he's telling us we can approach the God of the universe with freedom and confidence. Because the wrath is gone, the judgment's gone, the condemnation's gone. Amazing. Amazing. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. So this is where we get back to what he started with. Remember, he said, for your sake, I'm a prisoner. And there's two ways that somebody would say that. One is passive-aggressive. One is, well, it's your fault I'm here. I'm happy to do it for you, but I just want you to know how much it hurt. You know, that's, that's one approach. Some of us are afraid God's going to be that way. We're going to get to heaven. He's going to be like, welcome to heaven. For the first 2,000 years, you get to watch uh, the Passion of Christ over and over and over um, and see how painful it was for me. You know, I mean, it's like that's what we think, you know. But that's not it. Jesus is going to be like, oh, I was delighted to do it for you. I'm just glad you're here. Just come in. 
You know, it's not going to be that I labored for 42 hours, you know, with you or whatever. And so as Paul's doing this, he's not being passive-aggressive either. What he's doing is he's trying to encourage them because he gives the hint at the end. He says, don't be discouraged because of my sufferings. Remember, the church in Ephesus he was with for two to three years. There's a real bond there, a real connection there. They were the church, one of the last churches he went to before he knew he was going to be in trouble. And he, and he spoke to them and said, keep going and make it happen. And he talked to the elders and said, lead them well because I won't be back. You know, it was a really big moment. So, of course, they're, they're, they're sad. Paul's in Rome. He's in prison. Ah, you know, they're, they're worried. They're sad. So he's trying to encourage them. He's saying, yeah, I'm here. I'm here for your sake, and I don't regret a word of it because the mission was amazing. Is amazing. He also isn't done. But he doesn't, she's not sure, you know, what that means yet. He might be dead for all he knows very soon. But he says, it's amazing. It was, what I get to do is incredible, so don't be discouraged for me because it's all for your glory, which is for God's glory. And I'm part of it, and that's amazing. So don't be discouraged. That's really what all that's about. He's sharing these amazing things just to tell to them, just to say to them, isn't that cool? I'm in prison for that. (laughs) Really? That's how he wants them to feel. He actually is not being passive aggressive because he doesn't want them to feel bad he's in prison. He wants them to rejoice, which is kind of an amazing thing. For this reason. (laughs) For what reason? Because he doesn't want them to be discouraged? Because the church is such a big, important role? I think both of those are true because the mystery's been revealed, because Paul's been given this grace to, to serve them in this way for all those reasons, I think, for the, all that chapter. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. Let me see if I missed a note here. Oh, yeah, I already said that. Okay. I said that too. Okay. I just don't keep up with my notes sometimes. Okay. Sorry. It's okay. It's exciting stuff. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. It's an interesting phrase, and I don't know if I know entirely what it means, except for the fact that at this point, remember Paul has continued. What did did Paul call the church? The Christian religion. What was Paul calling it? Do you guys remember? The way. He was calling it the way. What were other people starting to call it? Christianity. That's what they were starting to call it. They were starting to call people Christ followers, Christians. It's almost as if Paul is saying, isn't that cool? I didn't make it happen, but now the whole world is even calling us by the name of our God. You know, it's kind of cool. And it is true today, right? It's still true. So I think, that's, I think that might be part of what he's saying. Um, although I'm not sure what his family in heaven is. I, so I really don't know. I, except the, uh, the point is the Father, again, is behind everything. The Father is the substance for everything. The Father is, is the creator for everything. And he holds everything together. And that might be all he means there, too. Anyway, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. And I love the picture of these guards chained to him. And Paul keeps getting on his knees and kneeling before, you know, it's just like they can't miss all this stuff, you know. They're like chained to him. He's like, I'm going to kneel now. And they're like, what? Okay. <laughs> you almost have to kneel with him, don't you? Have you? Can you picture that? I mean, if you're chained to somebody and they kneel, you kind of have to get down, you know. So it's almost like he's like, come on, let's kneel. <laughs> it's, it's great. I love it. I love it. And these guys are here in the gospel 24 hours a day. You know, I just, it, I love this because you get this sense of Paul that he doesn't feel like he's their prisoner. You know, they're his prisoner. You know, it's like, I get to share the gospel. There's a verse that comes up later where Paul talks about the whole palace guard has been impacted. This may be why. I mean, this may be why. Seriously, you can imagine this, this might be how it happened, you know. Anyway, so here he is kneeling. He's got the guard there. <laughs> I pray that out of his glory, and how much you want to bet that occasionally Paul prays out loud just because the guard's there? 
you know, I'm just thinking that probably happens. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I'm not even going to pretend that I can totally uh, slice this verse up with all that it deserves. Uh, It feels almost beyond me. It feels a little too rich for me even to, to get all of it. But I do see a couple things here that we should recognize. One is, again, he never talks about just God's riches. He never just says riches. It's always unsearchable and glorious and immeasurable. And, you know, it's, he's reminding us that his riches are rich, you know? It's the richness of his riches, you know? It's, there's, just, there's more to it than just, you know, riches. But this is fascinating. Then he prays that he may strengthen you with power. Power is a big theme throughout Ephesians. Strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. There's that sense of inner being. We've been made new. We are a new creation. His spirit is, com- is united with our spirit, Paul says in Colossians. His spirit's united with our spirit in our inner being as we become made new through the gospel. And so he's, he says, uh, he's, he's, this is cool too because he's going to get the whole trinity, by the way, in this prayer. He prays to the Father that the Father would strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So I want you to be strengthened with power. He hasn't talked about what that power is or what it does or why it's there, but given everything he's talked about so far, it's huge. It's not small. This isn't just power, you know. This is power. But then he he goes on, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So I love the fact that he references all three levels of the Trinity, all three members of the Trinity, levels is the wrong word, all three members of the Trinity here. I love the fact that he does that. Not sure what all that signifies, but it's a cool, cool idea that he's, he's kind of praying for the fullness of God right? Which he keeps talking about in Ephesians 2, you know, also. Um, And then he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So we already know that Christ is in us. We already know that that we have a new nature. But there are times in which the word dwell or abide is used, and it's not sort of a given. uh, Again, I think Christ is there. He doesn't come and go. He doesn't leave us. He never abandons us. But there is a sense of where is he, is he, you know, is he kind of, are we moving in complete unity with him? Are we walking in fellowship with him in a way where he's dwelling in us? And Paul's saying, I pray that God would, through his spirit, strengthen you so that Christ would be a dwelling in your hearts, not just hanging out, but really dwelling through faith. So even the faith requires the power of God. So here he says the power he's praying for is just that we would be everything that we're called to be as a Christian. And it requires the power of the Holy Spirit to do it. It's a huge power. Yeah, speak. Even if he stays forever, you know, you don't want him to be the uncomfortable house guest, <laughs> right? <laughs> no, I love it. That's a good picture. I love that, the intimacy of that picture. I think that's really good. Thank you, Jerome. I like that. Um, so he prays for that power. That's one thing. Then he prays that you, the church, being rooted and established in love. Okay, so rooted in love. What, what starts the church? The love of Christ, right? 
That's what starts it. That's what roots it. I think the established has something to do with Paul's time there too. You know, he was in the church for three years. I think he's kind of knows. You guys are established. You're not just kind of hanging out, you know? So I pray that, that, that you being rooted and established in love, I don't think he's praying they will be. I think he, he probably does pray they will be, but I think he's saying you are. So that being the case, he's going to pray for something else along with that. I think being rooted and established in love is kind of an amazing thing to have Paul say you are <laughs> as a church. You know, how many churches need to get there? first, you know. So he's like, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power. And here's that word power again. So again, watch what the power is for. Is it power to heal people? That would be so awesome. You know, Paul seemed to get a lot of mileage off of that. You know, it was the guy he raised from the dead when he preached for six hours and the guy fell out of the window and then he, right, we saw that in Acts. That, that, then he was able to preach for another six hours because he raised the guy from the dead. That's pretty cool. I could probably preach a little longer too if I could do that. So um, I just think, you know, this is, there is that kind of power, you know, power to heal, power to, to speak eloquently. There's all sorts of things Paul could follow this up with, but he doesn't, right? In this moment, he says, I pray that you would have the power together with all the saints. Again, it's that communal sense. He's not praying for an individual here. He's praying that together, that this would be something that you guys, because you're rooted and established in the love of God and in the love of each other, that you may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. That's crazy. It just takes power. It takes godly power. It takes Holy Spirit power. It takes divine power just to even begin to comprehend how great is the love of Christ. Amazing. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Okay, interesting use of terms here. To know a love that's beyond knowing. But all the way through, Paul's been talking about this mystery and the revelation and the administration. And for him, the love of God is part of that mystery, that he's beginning to understand it. That's what he didn't understand when he was killing Christians, right? He didn't understand why Jesus could possibly be the Messiah, because he died. You know, what is that all about? And to understand that this God has this incredible kind of love is, is amazing. Also, the word know here, we, we have two words. It's interesting, we actually almost flip them. And I'm not going to make a big thing of this, and you can find... Scriptures where this isn't exactly the case. But the Greek words for know and the Greek words for faith are, are contextually, um, in connotation, they are sometimes different from what contemporary Americans think and they, that they're, they're switched. And here's what I mean. We sometimes think of faith as this sort of feeling that we get, this intimate sense of believing things. And yet Paul often uses faith to refer to the teachings themselves. He says, stand firm in the faith, meaning hold to the doctrines, don't let them go. That's important. And we think of no as doctrines. We think of no as things that we understand. And yet, when Paul uses the term no, he uses a Greek word which is, means intimate knowledge. It's, in fact, not to, we're all adults. It's the same word that's used, for example, when we talk about knowing someone intimately, right? When Scripture would talk about that kind of knowledge, that's the word Paul uses when he talks about knowing the love of Christ. It's an intimate, felt love. That's why it surpasses knowledge. That's why it surpasses just the mere understanding of it. So he says, I'm praying that you would have the power to know it, to feel it, to grasp it, to be consumed by it. And then he says, the reason I'm praying for this for you, I mean, do you even need a reason? Not really, but he's going to give one. (laughs) He says, so that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I just don't know how you get Again, beyond me. You know, I read Ephesians and sometimes I'm just like, okay, Paul, 
I have not caught up to the mystery yet. You know, I mean, there's, there's aspects of this. I just, I'm like, ah, you know, how did you see it? You know, I'm not there yet. And, and, and that's, he's talking about the fullness, the, all the, I, even, again, filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. You know, the way I think about this is we, we sometimes call things full when they're not, right? If you go to a swimming pool that's full of water and you say that's full of water, right? And you would be accurate, but not really accurate. Because, in fact, there's enough room between the, the top of that swimming pool and the water for you to get in. Otherwise, it would all overflow, right? There's enough room for a lot of people to get in, right? There has to be. And yet, we would call that a full swimming pool as opposed to an empty one, right? Is that swimming pool full? Yeah. But he's saying ev- the fullness of every measure of the fullness of God, it's like he's saying all, the, you know, a swimming pool that's filled all the way up. You know, you couldn't, you, it's like a flat plane from the edge of the pool all the way across to the other edge. You know, if you could walk on water, it would be a straight walk. If you were Jesus, you could prove it, you know. But, but, it, but, it, but there's, there's no gap, you know. There's not room for anything else. And that's the thing. If a swimming pool is full of water, what happens if you put something else in it? It overflows. To actually be full of something means there's not room for anything else. That's kind of what he's saying, you know. That you, and, and again, I do want to stress, he's speaking communally to them. I'm not sure that in the way he's talking about, I don't know, I won't, I won't deny anything, but I'm not sure this side of heaven that it's possible for an individual to be filled to the full measure of the fullness of God. But can a community be filled to the full measure of the fullness of God? Apparently, at least he's praying <laughs> for it. I guess he doesn't guarantee it's possible, but that's what he's praying for. It requires the power of God to make it happen. But, but it not only requires the power of God, he gives us the link. It, it really only requires us to know. If we grasped how deep the love of Christ was, then we would have the fullness of the measure of God. The full measure of the fullness of God. So he says it. And I think that's kind of amazing because we look to get that full measure lots of other ways, right? If I understood the doctrines better, if I understood the law better, if I did the right things more often. Paul's like, I, that's all good. What I'm really praying for is just that you would know. That you would know. There's nothing better than that. And then, as if that isn't enough, he gives this huge, big picture of, of, of the church and of the gospel and of God for three chapters now. And then, and he talks about power, 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 power. Coming, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the same power that created the universe, the power of the Holy Spirit in you to let Christ dwell in you, the power of God to help you know his love. He then says this, now to him. This is like his little benediction to close off this. He doesn't know he's closing off a chapter, but we do. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. It's like a little, he's like, it's fun because he says, for this reason I pray, and then he sort of prays. Do you notice that? He's like, here's what I pray for you about. And then in the middle, he's, he's like, he gets caught up. He's actually praying as he's telling them what he prays about. And then he closes it off, you know, amen. So be it. We're good. You know, end of my prayer. But, but this, this phrase, this verse, uh, look at the 21 first. Look at the conclusion. To him be glory in the church. That's what he's been talking about, that God is glorifying himself through the church. That's the plan. So he's just praying for that. And in Christ Jesus. And of course, that's how God is glorifying himself in the church, is by glorifying Jesus and Jesus being the glory and the redeemer. Okay, that's all good. But he says to him who is, so to him be the glory. That's really the sentence. The rest is a modifier. It's like, who's him? Let me describe him again. One more way for you in case you missed it. 
And he describes him as him who is able to do immeasurably more. That means uncountable. Can't even, can't even count up how much more. You can't quantify it. Can't say a hundred times more. Can't say a thousand times more. Can't even say infinitely more. Because that is for our minds a measurement. It's just beyond that even. More than all we ask. Okay, that's not a big deal because frankly we don't ask a lot. I really don't think so. I think sometimes we think we ask a lot. I think, and I think what we often ask feels like a lot, but sometimes it's really small, you know? <laughs> so, okay, he can do more than we ask. It doesn't mean he's always going to do what we ask. True. But it's more than that. More than all we can ask or even imagine. We cannot even begin to imagine. See, I think I can imagine a lot of power. Don't you? I mean, if, if, if God said, you know, do you think I'm capable of X, Y, and Z? I'd say yes. I mean, I can, I can imagine you doing that. I can imagine you doing anything. I can't imagine anything you can't do. And yet, he can do more than that. <laughs> he can do more than I can even imagine, more than I can even begin to comprehend. There are many days, many days in my life where I don't understand why God doesn't do what I want him to do. But it's not because he lacks the power. That Paul wants us to know that. I think Paul would also have us know it's not because he's not smart enough and doesn't want to. It's not because he lacks the grace. Those also are not the issues. But here, Paul is saying, he can do more than you can even imagine. Don't think it's because he's incapable of what you ask him to do. And I think the flow here in Paul is that he wants to do more, and he is doing more. And where he's leading and his plan is more than we can imagine. See, we can't imagine, really, and this is where some of it begins to click for me. We can't really imagine what a perfect, redeemed, unfallen universe looks like. So little is our imagination in this regard that if you talk to people who, who, who are not believers, one of the things they'll say is, it just sounds boring. And I say, that's just because we have no imagination. I mean, really, that's, that's what I think. I mean, we're like, we can't imagine any excitement other than conflict. <laughs> we can't imagine anything, you know, entertaining other than, you know, conflict and, and, and depravity. You know, it's kind of like, well, that's just us. That's not God. See, God imagined the universe in its perfect perfectness at the beginning of creation. And we couldn't. That's the funny thing. We, I mean, this, how do you even say this? Because we weren't around. But, but we can't imagine what he created. We can only picture what he created and then sort of add to it, right? Alien movies never truly have completely unique looking creatures. Have you noticed that? They always look like some other creature, just different. But they're taken from that. They're humans that are blue or they're spiders that are large. I mean, really, they're just, they're always based upon what we see because we can't actually imagine something completely new. And yet God did it when he created everything. That's what we can't imagine. So when he says the world's going to be redeemed in a way you can't imagine, I say, bring it on. That sounds awesome. (laughs) And yes, I do think there's relevance to our own lives. When we say, you know, when we lose hope and we despair and we think our marriage, our job, our life, our finances, our circumstances can't get better, a lot of times it's a lack of imagination. You know, and God doesn't have that. God doesn't lack imagination. He can do it. He can do it. Okay. Chapter 4. Oh, I probably missed a bunch of stuff here. Let's see. Oh, no, that's where we are. Chapter 4, he says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, so here again, he reminds them, but I love this, again, he's reminding them, who is he a prisoner for? Again, do they need to feel guilty? No, he's a prisoner for the Lord, right? It's God's, it's God's fault I'm here. 
And again, think about the fact that Paul is in prison saying these things, right? It's one thing for someone who's living in a mansion and has a million dollars and is on TV talking about how great God is to tell you that God can do more than you can imagine, you know, when he's doing really well. It's another thing for Paul in prison to be saying, God is amazing, you know, because there's something there. <laughs> and he's not, just blame, blame, he's not just claiming it based on his circumstances. He's claiming it based on the administration of the grace and the mystery and the revelation. So he says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. This is one of those verses, you yank this verse out. Live a life worthy of the calling you've received. And we all get some sort of vague idea of it. And we think, yeah, that's good. I've been saved. But look at the last chapter we just read and think about that sentence. The calling we've received is to reveal the manifold wisdom of God. (laughs) That's a big calling. Therefore, living a life worthy of that is a big thing. Again, it's really clear. Paul is very clear that living a life worthy of it doesn't mean you get that calling revoked if you don't. He's not saying only by living properly will you be part of this plan. No, the plan, we're part of the plan by the grace of God. Paul didn't become part of the plan because he did the right thing. He became part of the plan by the grace of God. So he's not saying that. He's not saying your your calling will be revoked. He's simply saying, this is the calling you have. You ought to live in it. Paul often has this picture, I think. You know, there's, it's interesting how throughout, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a literature fan, and if I, if I wasn't a preacher, I'd probably be a literature teacher. And, I, you know, there's kind of this theme throughout literature for years and years and years, and Mark Twain captured it in such a strong way that people have repeated it ever since. It's this whole prince and pauper theme, right? Mark Twain wrote this story about this prince who looks exactly like someone else, and he goes out in the world, and, and people think he's a pauper, and he dresses like a pauper, and it's, just, and it's just wrong, right? It's not who he is. It's not what he should be doing, but he looks like that. But this theme, this idea of a, of a king who's in rags, and people don't recognize him for who he is, or, or an orphan who turns out to have royal blood and ends up being a king, you know, at the end of the story. This, this runs throughout literature because there is this, this sense of that. And that's what Paul's saying is that you have this incredible royal calling. Why, then, do you live on the streets in rags? Right? Now, again, he's not saying it's inappropriate to be in prison. So I'm using that term, live on the streets in rags, metaphorically. He's not saying it's wrong to be in prison. But even in prison, he's living like he's a child of God. (laughs) Right? And that's why the guards are always like, who is this guy? You know? That's why even before he ended up in Rome, the the important people who called him in liked to listen to him talk. You know? They didn't believe him, but they liked it. They were like, he talks so weird. (laughs) You know? This is not how I expect people to be when I've got them in prison. You know? And that's who he is. So that's what he's saying. You know, you're more than mere men, he said to the Corinthians. He's saying the same thing to these guys. Live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I have some notes here that I'm going to look at. The first first time all evening I looked at my notes. Give me a second here. So I think it's fascinating that he, that's the point I wanted to make. I think it's fascinating that he spends all this time talking about power, this huge power that we have. And then he follows it up with live a life worthy of that calling. And our immediate reaction would be, yes, I have power, so I need to live powerfully, right? And we try to come up with what that means. And we want to go out and demand respect from people. Sometimes the church in America spends a lot of time demanding respect. I think it's a mistake. 
I don't see Jesus ever demand respect when he walked to the earth, which is weird because he deserved it, right? I mean, I'm not saying he shouldn't have had respect. But rarely did he go up to people and say, respect me. You know, in fact, I think never. (laughs) You know, he didn't do that. Instead, he did what Paul says. He says, take all that power and be completely humble and gentle. And it's a different use of power than we're used to in our culture. Our culture is not into gentle and humble power. (laughs) True, (laughs) true, true. And I like, you know, so humble. Be completely (laughs) humble. Well, again, who's a really good example of this uh, right as Paul's writing? Paul, (laughs) right? He's in prison. He's being humble, you know? He's not like being all uppity about it. I love gentle too. We don't think of gentle as being something related to power. And yet, gentleness only makes sense in relation to power. In other words, if you don't have any power, you're not gentle, you're just weak, right? That's different. I mean, if, I'm, if I am a six-year-old and, and I take your hand and I squeeze your hand, you wouldn't feel much. And you wouldn't necessarily say that was gentle. You would just say, that's what you can do, <laughs> right? But if I'm a dad and I take my eight-year-old's hand and I don't squeeze really hard, I could conceivably damage her hand, possibly break bones if I squeeze hard enough, okay? So the fact that I have that power means that the fact that I don't, that I'm able to hold her hand and it doesn't hurt her at all, that's gentleness. It's gentleness when you have the power to do harm and you don't do harm. That's why God is gentle. God is the most gentle because God could just go and that would be it, you know, the blink and we're all gone, you know, and yet he's gentle. He's gentle with us. He's very gentle with us. And so the, the, the more powerful you are, the more gentleness is a factor. And so that's what he says to the church. He says, be completely humble. Be gentle. Don't walk around saying, we are part of the grand redemption plan and you are not. Ha, ha, ha. You know, whatever. I, there's a, there was a movie years ago about the rapture. Um, it was a terrible movie. And it was, they, it was, a seven, it was in the 70s. That's the, so you guys have never seen it, so I can make fun of it and you won't care. Um, it was made in the 70s. It was a terrible movie. Very low production quality. It was terrible. It's one of those movies you'd say, yeah, it was a Christian movie, and it wouldn't mean a good thing. And, but there was a song in it, the theme song for the movie. <laughs> it was all about the rapture, and people were raptured away, and, and people were left. It was called Left Behind. No, that's something else. That's, that's, that's current. Yeah, sorry. It was called something else like that. Maybe even called that. But the song, there was a song that, that was called, uh, oh, it was called I Wish We'd All Been Ready. That was the name of this movie. And the song was I Wish We'd All Been Ready. And, and it was not a good song. But it was all about, you know, guns and wars and people dying on the floor. That was one of the lines. And then the line was I Wish We'd All Been Ready. And then it's something like I walked through the door and you didn't. And now you're lying here dying. I wish we'd all been ready. And it had this really smarmy sense to it, you know? It's like, well, I wish you'd been ready. You know, and I just remember thinking, who's going to watch this movie and want to be part of us? You know, I, just, I was like, this is not appealing. This is bragging about something that hasn't even happened yet. I mean, it was, it was really weird. And, and so that's what Paul's warning against, right? It's like, be gentle. Prayer 
Yeah, yeah. And come share your deepest needs with me so I can pray with you, right? Yeah, I'm not going to. Yeah, thanks, buddy. <laughs> right, right. And, and there are moments. I mean, you know, God sent prophets in the Old Testament. And sometimes they were really strong. But, but you know, it just be gentle. Be completely humble and gentle. That's what he tells us to do with all this power. Be completely humble and gentle. And then he says, make how much effort? Every effort to maintain the spirit of unity. So he talked in 2 and 3 about how amazing it was, part of the mystery, part of the revelation, that God has brought together the Gentiles and the Jews, and he's brought them together in one body. And then he says, make every effort to maintain the spirit of unity. Unity is so important to God, and it's so important to his plan in the, in the, in the revealing the manifold wisdom of God to the, to the world. Unity is a big, big deal. I am not one of those people who believes that means that all churches need to become one big church and there should be no denominations. I think there's a reason for that, and I think it's all good. But it does mean that we have to dispense with the habit that we have of, of giving up easily on unity. This is make every effort to preserve the spirit of unity. And what we tend to do is it's just we go from one church to another. I don't like this church. This church is not nice to me. So we move to another church. We have to, we have to get past that. God speaks so often about it. We just have to learn what it means to make every effort to maintain the spirit of unity. Well, and I, I guess I would go even further than that. I think there will be conflict. If you think there's not going to be any conflict, then you'll leave when there is. But, but you're right. The conflict takes its proper place and its proper perspective, right? And then the unity makes more sense. And he goes on. He even says, he says, um, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. And by the way, that's a better phrase. I kept saying spirit of unity, but it's not just a spirit of unity. It's the unity of the Spirit, which is the Holy Spirit. He brought us together. He made it here. Through the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. It's like he's saying, look, I don't know what all the little things are that come in to inhibit unity, but what is the unity around? And he's like, this, and this is big, <laughs> is so much bigger than all the little things that, that disrupt it. I remember this is not like an amazing, but it was a very impactful sort of experiment for me. Experiment. It wasn't really an experiment. It felt like a very impactful sort of moment, experience for me. Um, many years ago, I don't even remember when, there was a, and maybe some of you guys remember, so you guys remember the Promise Keepers movement? I don't even know if they're still around or not. Are they still around? Okay, so good. Remember them. They're still around. Um, Promise Keepers movement, which I think is a great movement, well, is a great movement, um, was when I was involved. Still is, I think. Anyway, there was, out of that, there came one year, this thing that was called Stand in the Gap, where uh, Christians from all over the country went to Washington, D.C., not to protest, not to rally, not to march, just to pray. It was great, because it wasn't anything else. It was just pray. And there were, the, no one knows the numbers because, of course, the Christians said there were 90 million people and the world said there were two. So somewhere in between there was probably the actual number. Um, I can tell you this, that I've been on the Washington, D.C. Mall twice in my life, and once was for fireworks, and the media said there were a million people there that day. Second time was for this prayer time, and it looked the same. Now, would I know the difference between a million and 800,000? Probably not, <laughs> but there were that many people. I mean, it looked, that, it looked that crowded and that busy and that amazing. And we were all there just to pray. And they did this thing, which you may have seen done before, but in this, 
group of, uh, let's say 500,000, because I don't think that's a stretch. In this group of 500,000 people, it was amazing what, what, how this kind of felt. They, they had the speaker, and he was up front, and he said, okay, on the count of three, I want you all to yell the name of your church as loud as you can, right? Because we were from all over the country. And so he did that, and we yelled the name of our church, and it was just complete chaos, right? It was just utter chaos. And then he said, now, on the count of three, I want you all to yell the name of your Lord as loud as you can. And we all yelled Jesus Christ, and it was one voice, and it was unbelievable. I mean, the clarity and the, the radiance of it, it was kind of like we stopped, and it just echoed, whereas the one before was just noise. <laughs> this, was, this was impressive. And, that's, and that was his point, of course. He was like, so what's our unity? You know, what are we really here? Why are we all here? And it was great. And, and, and we prayed, and it was a good time. But, but I just remember that. I've, I've never forgotten that. that the, I don't know how far you could hear that, but imagine 500,000 people all yelling the name of the Lord Jesus at one time with one voice. I'm sure you could hear that very far. And before that, all you heard was noise, <laughs> you know, when it was all about the individual churches. So again, I think there's a need to be committed to a local church, and I think it's good that we have many different kinds of churches. But I think there's a unity among all those churches, which is important, but I've never been able as a pastor to understand or grasp. It was one of my hopes with Lifesong that we would reach towards city unity. We failed miserably on that. Um, we did good on our other ideas. That one, we did not do well. Um, but even within a church, I think unity is important. We did all right with that. <laughs> so I think that's, anyway, not to, does that make sense? You get it? There you go. To, we were talking about those phrases you use sometimes when you want to make sure people know what you're saying. For me, it's important because otherwise I keep talking. So that lets me know, okay, I made my point. I can move on. So, um, so he says that. We have this unity. We have this incredible unity, and we need, to, uh, we, we need the grace to maintain it. But then he goes on and says this right on the heels of this idea of unity. He says, but, all right? So that's a, that's a conjunction, which means I'm going to give you a contrast, not an opposition to unity, still in favor of unity, but there's going to be some contrast in this, something about this unity. And it's in contrast to the fact that we all serve one God, one Jesus. That's all the same. That doesn't change. We're a church because that's all the same, but there is something that's different. And he says this, to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And what he's about to, to remember, this is coming off, remember he said in chapter 3 that he had been given grace to administer in a specific way. It was his gift, and it was his role, and it was his personality, and it was his skills, and the grace came through that, and it was to be done in a certain way. And now he says, to each of us, grace has been apportioned. This isn't the grace of our salvation. That's been given lavishly to all of us. It's not like you got a little bit of salvation grace, and you got a lot. And you, that, that, that's not what it means. We all got salvation grace in abundance, overabundance. But here he means he's apportioned each of us gifts. And, and, and when he talks about spiritual gifts and all the rest of the epistles where he talks about it, this is what he means. He means we've been given a slice of grace, the very power and love of God to bless other people with. That's the gift we've been given. And that's different. And so within the unity around one body, one Lord, one God, we're all going to be functioning differently. We're all going to have our own unique slice of grace that comes out differently. Sometimes we get really hung up on the lists of spiritual gifts, and I think that's okay, and it's not a problem to, to kind of look through those. Sometimes it gives you a sense of what you might be good at. But I think those lists are limiting, and I don't think they're intended to be limiting. Paul never gives the same list of gifts twice, right? He, he, it's always a little different. In each of the books where he gives a list of the gifts of God, the spiritual gifts, it's not the same. 
And if he really wanted to give us a comprehensive, complete list, he probably would have given us the same list. But he doesn't. It's like he's just giving us examples. And I actually think that's what he's doing. I think the gifts of God are as unique and individual as the people of God. Now, there may be categories, and there may be, you know, some of us teach, some of us, um, you know, lead worship, some of us uh, serve by, with our hands, and some of us serve, um, you know, with mercy. I mean, I think, I think the lists he gives are examples, and they're good examples because they kind of cover categories of things. But I think if we get stuck in saying, well, you know, my, exactly what I do doesn't line up in here. I don't know how that works. Then, then we're, we're missing something. When you get to heaven, I just don't think there's going to be a pop quiz in which God is going to say, what's the name of your spiritual gift? I just don't think he cares. But I think what he is going to be interested in, he won't ask you this because he'll know, but I think what he'll be interested in is how did you use the gifts I gave you? How did you use the grace that I gave you? Did you spread the grace to other people? And for me, this is where we start getting into this, this real sense, being a superhero nerd, that this is what we've been given, kind of these superhero anointed, spiritually anointed things that we don't understand how valuable they are. We don't understand how special they are. We don't understand that they are divine and they're spirit-filled and they are holy and they are anointed with power, that same power that he's been spending so much time talking about that he used in the grace that God had given him. He's saying, you have. Now, again, it may not be the same role. So you may not travel across the world and you may not speak to the hundreds of thousands of people that doesn't make your spiritual gift any less valuable. And, and that's what he gets into in Ephesians 4. Let's press on just a little bit. I don't know if we'll get through the next 16 verses, but maybe we will because it's, it's so cool to see how he kind of pulls this together. He says, he says, each one of his grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his training, gave gifts to men. So he's, he's quoting from Psalms here, and he's saying that this is a prophetic psalm, that when Jesus ascended, and, and Jesus even said, when I leave the Holy Spirit, I will leave the Holy Spirit with you. When I ascend to heaven, then the Holy Spirit will come. And, the Holy Spirit, and this is saying, they gave gifts to men. And then Paul just has a little parenthesis to, to show why he thinks this, this prophetic verse is referencing Jesus' ascension. He says, what does ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. He's simply drawing it back to the crucifixion and resurrection. I'm not personally of the opinion, looking at the language here, that he means Jesus went to hell. There's other verses which may or may not say that, that Jesus went and proclaimed to the, to the, the sinners captive in hell. But I don't think this verse says that. It says that he, he went to the earthly regions. He died. He was buried. I think he's just saying he was crucified, he was resurrected, then the Spirit came and gave us gifts. He's just kind of reiterating what we know already happened. And then he says, it was he, and this is what it says. So he's talking about Jesus. So he gives gifts. So before I, I, I go into what these gifts are, and I think we can do this in five minutes and let you guys go, but I think that when it, before he goes in, here's what I want to say about spiritual gifts, because I think we, again, to be really clear, as Paul talks about, he talks about the administration of ga- grace that was given to him by the Lord for them. Remember he put it that way? Anytime we forget that spiritual gifts are given for the church through us, we are missing the point of the spiritual gift altogether. They're not, God gives you gifts. He gave you life, and he gives you blessings, and he gives you, he's going to spend all of eternity showering you with blessings. But this gift is not for you. Now, it's a gift that he wants to use you at all, but this gift is for other people. And we forget that about spiritual gifts, but that's what their point is. Paul was given the administration of the grace for the Gentiles, not just for himself, not just so he understood it. Oh, that's cool. Nice. I'm going to go be a hermit. You know, that wasn't what it was for. And I think about this a lot because that when you have kids, this happens all the time. When my kids are too young, 
um, they want to give my mom, my mom, they don't, they don't want to give my mom anything. Um, they want to give my wife uh, a, a gift, right, for Mother's Day or her birthday or something like that. But they can't afford it. They don't have any money. So I'll take them to the store. We'll pick something out, and I'll let them pick it out. And they'll usually pick out something they like. But I figure that's okay because, you know, at least they're trying. So they pick out, you know, a little, a little, little plastic Barbie, you know, for my wife. And so I'm like, okay, cool. So we take it home, and we wrap it up. And then occasionally, one of my kids will say, I like it. I don't want to give it to her. I really like this gift. This is awesome. And if they refuse, they never get away with it, but if they actually refused to give it to her, it would just be missing the point, right? It's a gift for her they're holding on to. This is what sometimes we try to do with spiritual gifts. We don't recognize they're for the body of Christ. Sometimes we do it by denying we even have one, right? If we buy that Barbie and I give it to her, I say, here, I'm giving you this to give to your mom. And she says, I don't have anything to give mom. And I say, I'm giving you this to give to your mom. She says, but she won't want that. I say, but I'm giving you this to give to your mom. I just, it's not worth it. You know, that's what we do with spiritual gifts too. I don't have anything to offer. And God's like, I gave you something. It's a portion of my grace. How can you, how can you despise this portion of my grace? You know, I gave it to you for people. Do we always know right away? Do we always understand it? No, of course not. I get that. And God's gracious with us. And I, so I don't think there's, a, I don't think it's like a, a true, you know, loss in a sense. I don't think that he, you know, you miss it for three years and God lets a lot of people be unblessed. But but I do think there's something really important that Paul talks about, about this is the way the body should function. And so he begins to list some of these, these gifts here really quick. He says, it was he who gave some to be. So he's going to start with a certain group of gifts, and he's going to talk about the people, that, that he actually gives to the church certain people with certain gifts for, for a certain purpose. He says, he was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Stop there. So... If he gave some, so how the church works. So it says he gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, or the language is unclear, it could be pastors, teachers. In other words, it's not clear if the, the pastors and teachers is intended to be one thing or two separate categories. And I don't know, and there's no way to know. And I'm not sure it matters a whole lot because you can kind of come to the same place either way. But he says apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. We'll take them separate for now. So let me ask you, if you look at, let's just brainstorm for a little bit, all right? You may have read ahead in the passage, you may not, that's okay. But, but if you didn't, let's not for now. And just, just talk with me a second. He's listing those as a group. If you were to describe sort of the common role that that group has in the church, what would you say? And don't worry about getting the right answer. Just, I just want us to brainstorm a little bit. What, what's, what's in common about all those groups? How would you describe it if you said, you know, these are the people that are responsible for what? Okay, public speaking. That seems to be a lot of that in there. What else? Leading. leading. I think leadership is huge. A certain amount of knowledge, right, of understanding. Yeah, I think that's true. You see that in there? You certainly do, don't you? That's a reasonable... I don't know why we make that assumption. I do too. I'm not sure, but that, that seems reasonable. Maybe it's our experience tells us that. Maybe it's because we sense leadership, and leadership is always going to be a smaller subset. It would seem weird. I guess we really kind of... We, <laughs> well, there, there were a few days at Lifesong where there were more people on the music team than in the seats. But, uh, you know, you guys had that Sunday morning, right? So 7.30 in the morning. Um, <laughs> I think you're all right. 
I, I think there is a degree of speaking. There's definitely knowledge here. I think leadership is kind of the key. These are, these are what we would call kind of leadership issues. So what is the role of the leader in the church, if you were just to throw it out there? kind of pass on the message and the vision. Okay, that's interesting. Sure. Set goals, agendas maybe somewhat. Okay, okay. Good. What else? I think that's, I think that's accurate. What else? What's that? Yeah, a little guidance. Sure. Sure. I think there's, there's truth to that. Kind of the go-to. There's some responsibility there. Good. Instruction is definitely there. So here's one thing I want to say. A lot of things you just mentioned, you could almost attach to different ones more than others. For example, a pastor is going to probably do more guiding than an evangelist. Right? I would just guess that. I don't know that. And it depends what you mean by guiding. An evangelist will guide a lost person, perhaps. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And teachers are going to do more of that instruction, perhaps, than even a prophet. Maybe the prophet's not instructing, but prophets may do more of what you said, taking the message. I, I'm, and again, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not trying to make specific, I'm just saying it could be all of them, but it could be there's certain specific things in there. But I think you're all hitting on commonalities for the leader. Now let's see what Paul says. And it applies to everything you said, but it, it kind of takes it all and makes a really specific sort of broad point for all these people. But I think that can be done through instruction or guidance or recruiting. or I think there's a number of different ways it happens. But this is what he says their job is. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service. I really like that. I mean, I should. It's Paul. But, but I just mean that seems to me to cut right through everything. The job is, even if it's instruction, you know, I'm a teacher. I, I do believe I'm, a, I believe I'm in this category. I believe I'm a teacher, right? I actually believe I'm a pastor even without a church, but <laughs> that's okay. Teacher for sure. And so I believe I'm a teacher, so, and I believe a lot of my job is instruction. You know, that's what I try to do is help people understand and bring clarity, and, and that, that's what I do. But even as I'm bringing instruction, it's important for me to realize my goal in bringing instruction is not just to have, I mean, I love the aha moment. As a teacher, I can see it. I watch you guys all the time. And when those light bulbs go off, I'm like, yes. You know, there's a little fist pump, you know, in my heart. I'm like, yes, I saw it. You know, I, I can see that sometimes. It's like that nod or there's like sometimes your eyes get big, you know, and sometimes you look afraid. And even that sometimes I'm like, okay, connected anyway. I don't know what that meant, but we'll find out, you know. So I'm looking for those. But for me, it has to not stop there. That can't be the goal. It can't just be to sort of say, here's something new. It has to be something which prepares you for service. Everything I teach has to prepare you for works of service. That has to be my goal. The apostle, the prophet, the evangelist even. The purpose is to prepare them for works of service. Think about that. An evangelist who has in his heart, hey, I'm not only bringing this person to salvation, but I'm bringing them to salvation so that then they will be prepared to engage in the church in works of service. Think about how that kind of even fleshes out their role. Isn't that kind of interesting? So I love this idea that our job is to prepare people for works of service. Have you noticed, though, that in a lot of churches, if you ask people what the leadership's role is, it's the service itself. A lot of people see that the pastor is to do the service, right? 
I, 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 I know lots of pastors who, who it is on their heart and it's part of their gift and they're really good at, at doing, you know, the visiting of the sick and, and, and things like that. I'm, I'm not at all saying that pastors shouldn't do that. But really, congregational members should do that. And pastors can lead the way by example, but they should also be preparing them to do that because there's nothing in that that you can't do, right? There's no reason you can't love someone who's in a hospital just as well as the pastor can. You don't need, you know, a special anything other than the Spirit of God, which you have, right? It's not the pastor's role to invite people to church. I mean, not that he shouldn't do it, but that's not like his work of service uniquely, right? And even with the evangelist, I don't even think the evangelist's role is simply to do all the evangelism. Some of it is to prepare you to do evangelism, right? Good question. Let's keep reading. Because it goes on to say, here's what the works of service should produce. So the, the, the leader's job is to prepare everyone else for service. And he describes the service specifically at the moment as service to each other, building each other up, to build the church up. It doesn't mean there won't be service outside of the church. But this is actually what he says here. And he says this. He says, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Does that phrasing sound familiar? This is what he just prayed for, right? He's now saying this is how it happens. It happens when the leaders prepare people for works of service and the people do the works of service. And what are those works of service? They're building each other up. He doesn't get more specific than that, Meredith, because it depends very much on the portion of grace you've been given. How do you build people up? by using the superhero power God has given you. If it's invisibility, that would be bizarre. <laughs> but if it's mercy or generosity or the ability to say the right thing at the right time or music or, you know, again, I think the, 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 the ideas are almost limitless. Even if you believe that the lists that Paul gives are sort of concrete and set in stone, even the way those unfold is different, right? I'm a teacher. Paul's a teacher. C.S. Lewis was a teacher. We all teach differently, right? <laughs> it's not going to come out the same. Yes? Would, the, would, who's, would whose work of service be that? Well, that'd be part of it. Again, I think the teachers... I think that would be more like an individual... I, I, you're, you're bringing up an interesting point, which is that he says here the leaders are to prepare everyone else for service, which doesn't mean the leaders don't also do works of service. It's part of, and, and that's true. But I think even the works of service the leaders in these capacities are undergoing need to be seen from the perspective of preparing people for the service. I think a pastor who does not see that his job is to prepare people for works of service and instead does all the works of service is actually neglecting his job. I think humanly, every single human being doesn't have an excuse to not do works of service. Right? So if you're a pastor, you can't say, I'm a pastor, I don't have to serve you. That, that would be kind of weird. <laughs> but, 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 but I do think the pastor's role as a pastor, everything he does is preparing people for works of service. Because I'm 
Which is part of preparing them for works of service. Absolutely. That's, that's part of how you... Yes, I, if that's what you're asking, I totally agree. Part of preparing people for works of service is imparting that knowledge. Some of it is imparting the vision and the agenda and the goals. Some of it is imparting the, the exhortation and the encouragement and the inspiration, right? I, I even put... It, it, he doesn't list worship leader. But, but in a sense, I would put... A, I, maybe worship leader is also one of these other things. But I would put them in this category. Because the worship leader's job on Sunday morning is to inspire people to works of service. Even if that work of service is worship. It includes everything. True. True. Right. Right, right, right. I, I, obviously, absolutely. Yeah, we're not excluded from doing that. I, and I would even say that Paul kind of saw his roles there. You know, as an, he was a tent maker and he was a Christian and at all times he's serving people. When he's a tent maker, he's serving them through his tent making. When he's an apostle, he's serving them by preparing them for service. When he's a pastor, which he also did, he's serving them by preparing them for service. See, Paul had all these gifts. That's, that you're like, okay, you know, there you go, yes. I think you make a valid point. And, I, and, I, and obviously, that some of the lines, you know, okay, when I'm preparing people for works of service, that is a work of service. And when you are doing a work of service, you may be preparing them by building them up. I, I think that's right. The point, though, that I would make that I think Paul wants to be clear about is actually a really good point that you just made, and that's this. These guys are preparing the church for works of service so that the church can do those works of service everywhere. So, so there is a specificity to the, to the role of leadership to prepare people for works of service. But I also want you to understand this. We get this backwards. We th- How do I say this? These are fewer, not because they're exclusive and more important. They're fewer because the more important task is left to everybody, which is serving. <laughs> Does that make sense? We, we sometimes think the pastors are really important and the, and the evangelists are really important and that these are the really important people. They are really important in their role of preparing the church. But the, the church changes the world and gives a picture of the manifold wisdom of God not through the pastor, 
but through the works of service that the congregation is doing that the pastors prepared them for. So the big grand vision Paul gave occurs through the flock, not through the leaders. The leaders have an important job because they're preparing the people to do that. But we get it backwards when we think their job is more important than, than ours in the congregation when we're at work. See, what you do when you're doing your furniture and you're just doing whatever you do is vastly important. I want to give you a really good example because it just happened to me. And I want to, it kind of, even Jerome and I were talking about this. It's, it's about Jerome, so. But we were talking about this on the way home after what I'm about to share with you. And some things clicked for me about the way I feel and the way that I've heard other people express. And, and I want to see if I can tie them together a little bit. It's really hard as a pastor to say to people, so when, when I was a pastor for many, many years, I would very often <laughs> say to the church members, it's not my job <laughs> to do this or that. I want to help prepare you to do this and that. You need to go do it. It's hard to say that because it always sounds a little bit like you're saying, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> but I really think that it's important to, to kind of take your hands off of some things. Say, it's, I want to prepare you to do this. Okay, so, but, it's, but here's what happens. The other thing that's really hard is it's really hard as a pastor and a teacher to stand in front of people and say, that job that you do, when you make that microchip or you make that furniture or you wash that car or you, or you sell that product, that job that you do is your mission field. That's where God has you right now. And doing that job and doing it well, doing it excellently, being a mom, being a dad, whatever it is, that is as holy as being a pastor and a teacher. That's what you need to see and that's what you need to do. It's hard when you say that because by the very nature of teaching, you're in the public while you're saying it and you're, 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 you're taking this role which looks important and kind of glamorous. But what's interesting, and so if occasionally people will say to me, I wish I had a gift like you have or I wish that I had your gift or I wish I could do your thing or I wish I could be in full-time ministry. And what's funny is, here's what happened. So yesterday, or Saturday night coming home from Paragon's Easter Saturday night service, um, uh, we drove through Carl's Jr. They have 67-cent drinks. And um, I'm very money, money poor right now. Money poor. Like, you have to add money to that. Anyway, whatever. I don't have a lot of money right now, so I don't treat my kids a lot. But I thought, oh, this will be cool. We'll get, like, four really big drinks and share them among all of us. So we pulled in, and I, you know, paid the 310 or whatever it was. And, and right as we get our Cokes and I put them down, the car dies just right there in the drive through I'm thinking, this is the worst place in the world, you know. And, and, and so I go to start the car, and it goes, and I look, and the gas tank is half full, and I'm like, oh, no. And I'm like, they're going to pull out the pitchforks any second now, you know. And, but fortunately, praise God, the, Carl's Jr. is on a hill. So we actually just, just started the car rolling, and we were able to roll all the way out and down into the parking lot. So that was good. But then the car was stuck, and we were stuck, and it was raining, and it was a bummer. And so, so I'm sitting there, and, and I'm starting to feel what I wrestle with occasionally, which is just really inadequate for my family. I don't make a lot of money. I've never made a lot of money. I don't know how to fix cars. I don't know how to fix houses. I don't know how to fix cabinets. I am terrible. I am, I am the opposite of handyman. I just can't do that stuff. I've never learned how to do it. It's never, I just don't do it. Not for lack of trying. In fact, there was a period where I was going to learn all that, and after destroying everything, you know, my wife was like, just stop trying. I was like, okay, I'm sorry. So, so really, seriously, I, I was just like, she literally was like begging me. I know you feel like a man if you can do this stuff, but just stop trying. <laughs> It's like, okay, sweetheart, I'm really sorry. So, but when you don't have money and you can't do it, 
things just don't get fixed, right? It's just, and I, and I, and all my friends, again, I'll make a statement that is not true, but this is how it feels. All my friends can do this stuff, you know. So I'm sitting there in the car, and, and on top of this, it, like I said, right now is really tight for us financially, and, and the last three months, things were really good. The conferences were going great. I was using my gift, and people were blessed, and then I had some cancellations in April and May, and so it's been a rough month. So, so I'm just feeling like, ah, I'm not providing for my family. He who doesn't provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. You know, those are the verses that the devil brings to mind, you know, when you're like at these places. The devil shouldn't use scripture, but he does. So he used it with Jesus, right? So anyway, we're, we're sitting there, and it's raining outside. I'm like, just perfect. And, and so the first thing is, well, okay, if it were me, I'd walk home because we're not that far. But my wife's on crutches. <laughs> my daughter's in the backseat. So I'm like, what am I going to do? Well, Robert's a nice guy. So I called Robert. I had just left him not that long ago, and he had just told me how much work he had to do. <laughs> and I'm like, Robert, can you come give us a ride out? Robert's like super kind about it, got him away from the computer, claimed that that was a good thing, but he was just being really, okay. <laughs> anyway, he came, he picked us up, he drove us home. But the car's still there, right? So the next morning, I drive my family, half of my family, to church go home and get the other half of my family and bring them to church. We do church. As soon as it's over, I don't stop and talk with anyone because i got to take the first wave home because I don't want the second wave to be holding up Jerome and Matt because Matt's got to go home and eat his deviled eggs. So, <laughs> so I, uh, I take the first wave home, and I drop them off, and I drive back for the second wave. And, of course, they're the last ones there, so Jerome and Matt were waiting anyway. But um, while they had been waiting... It wasn't here, so I don't know the exact conversation, but essentially they were like, why are you still here? And my family was like, because we don't have a car. So Jerome heard about it. So as we're driving home, my wife says, Jerome said he's pretty handy with cars if you need help. And, of course, my first thought is, yeah, I'm sure he is. Stinker. (laughs) And my second thought was, yeah, I could probably use that. So I actually texted Jerome. We got home, and I said, "You know, you want it's Easter. You know, if you." I, and I told him, even in the text, I said, "I hear you're handy with cars. I'm not, um, but I would ha- be happy to watch you while you work on it." I think I said something sort of semi bitter like that. And um, so he uh, he texted back, and he was really generous and did it on Easter. He actually said, "Let me come out and do that." And so uh, he came out, and, and he looked at it, and he worked on it, and he, you know, he just he knows what he's doing, you know. And I'm watching him. I'm like, "It's so cool. I'm going to watch." I'm trying, I'm still never going to do this, but I'm going to watch. And I'm trying to learn, and I'm trying to help him, you know, little ways. Can I hold that? You know, he was very gracious and pretended I was helpful. And so <laughs> when, it was, when it was all done, though, my car worked. I drove it home, you know, and it was great. And, um, but I, I was talking to him on the way home, and I, was, and I was just sharing just a little bit, just a snapshot, not, not like I just did now, but just a snapshot of, you know, it's funny. People sometimes feel like they wish they had the gifts that I have. And all my life, I just keep wishing, man, I wish I could do what Jerome does. <laughs> you know? And it just was kind of clicking for me that there is this, this wrongness in us wanting to be able to do everything. You know, it just isn't that way, and it shouldn't be that way. Because part of preserving the spirit of unity and reflecting the manifold wisdom of God is by the conviction that we all have something to bring to the table. And it's not just like, it's not like, I don't know how to say it. It's not just like, oh, yeah, everybody's supposed to do something, so we'll let you do that. No, it's like there is something that I need, you know. And, and there is huge nobility and honor in my mind for the person that can work on the car, 
you know, and the person that can fix the, the house. I mean, there really is. To me, that's an amazing thing. And when people say to me, I wish I could teach like you, I think, what do I do? I just stand up and talk. You know, what use is that to people on my bad days? You know, and, and but that's just it. You know, I, there is use to it. I wouldn't be flying around the country, you know, talking for nine hours at a time to people if I didn't think it made a difference. I recognize that. But so does whatever it is that God's given you. Whatever that grace is, whatever that power is, whatever that skill is, that's part of it. And so that fixing my car is a work of service. It builds me up. For one thing, it enables me to function. With with nine people in one house and one car, you can't do it. I don't know what we would have done, honestly. Don't know what we would have done today. So, and on top of that, I still need to the right. So, <laughs> so, but I just, I don't, I don't know how, I don't, I just, I just, I guess I, all I'm trying to say, and I'll let you guys go, all I'm trying to say is, after 23 years of being a pastor, I am keenly aware of how much I need the church, how much I need the community and the gifts and the skills that everybody else has, that I have been built up over the years. I have been enriched and enlightened and inspired and instructed and, and served and helped. I have been built up in countless ways over those 23 years. And people think, people who've been, I've been, you know, their pastor for 23 years, don't believe me when I tell them. So I'm not any of your pastor right now. So believe me that pastors, leaders, their job is to equip the saints for works of service. But the works of service are where it happens. The works of service are where God is glorified. It's where God is blessed. That's where the humility and the gentleness and the power shines through.